Hi, everyone. It's Allison Flowers from the Somebody Podcast. We're sharing another special podcast with you this week, A Slight Change of Plans, which was just named Apple Podcast's Best Show of the Year. Hosted by Maya Schenker, A Slight Change of Plans is all about understanding the science of change. That understanding, mixed with a healthy dose of compassion, has made the show a perfect antidote for the times we're living in. Maya has interviewed celebrities like Tiffany Haddish and Casey Musgraves, but she's interviewed real-life inspirations too, people who have dealt with cancer diagnoses or the loss of a loved one, and somehow managed to learn and grow from those hard experiences. We challenge you to listen to an episode and not be inspired. In this episode, Maya talks to Shapurl about Courtney's story and Shapurl's continued fight for the truth. You can find more episodes of A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. I remember that night like it was yesterday. I could still hear the thunderous beat in my head. And I remember being so startled out of my sleep because I've never experienced such a bamming at my door. So it it shocked me and I knew that something bad had happened. That's Shapurl Wells describing the moment when Chicago police officers showed up on her doorstep in the middle of the night. Her oldest child, her 22-year-old son, Courtney Copeland, had been fatally shot Chaperl needed answers about what had happened in Courtney's final moments, but it soon became clear she wasn't going to get them unless she took matters into her own hands. It wasn't by choice that I took this journey in investigating my son's murder. I had no other option. Chaperl did not know at the time that she'd spend the next five years trying to figure out what exactly had happened to Courtney. On today's episode, a mother channels her grief into justice for her son. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. Chaperl was grieving the loss of her son, Courtney, but her grieving process was complicated by the fact there were so many unanswered questions surrounding his death. I wanted to hear about her psychological journey through all this, how she balanced her dual identities as mom and investigator. And importantly, I wanted to know how all of her advocacy may have changed her relationship with Courtney's death. I started off our conversation by asking Shapurl about the kind of person Courtney was. He was such a loving person. I used to always come home, like from dropping off the kids at school and he'll be here and he'll come up and he'll be all in my bed. And I remember even in his teen and when he was even grown, he'd be like, can you just rub on my ears? You know, he was just like so affectionate. And um, I would say one of the best memories I have of Courtney is him being the glue. He was someone who if there was a conflict or he would be the first person to try to resolve it. Hey, you guys, you know, we're family. Let's pull it together. Let's, it doesn't uh, matter what happened. Let's just resolve this and move on. I remember uh, Courtney uh, shortly after my 
grandmother passed away and Courtney and my grandmother were very close. And he said, mom, uh, grandma wants me to keep the family together. And Courtney may have been 1920 at the time that she passed. And I was like, you know, that's a huge responsibility, Courtney. I said, but she saw something within you that felt that you could do it because Courtney was the type of person he got along with everyone. And so he would basically try to host family dinners. Let's invite this person because these are the things that my grandmother did, uh, especially around holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. She made sure everyone got together. In addition to being a family-oriented guy, Courtney was also making great strides in his professional life. He was a sales rep, and he earned a special bonus that allowed him to get a Burgundy BMW. And so I remember uh, him pulling up in our driveway probably around 12 or 1 in the morning. He was like, Mom, I did it. I did it. I got the car. I got the car. And I remember him giving me the biggest hug. And he was like, you got to come down there and see it. And the music was blasting. And he was just like so excited. His friends were out. I mean, it's like literally 12, 31 o'clock in the morning. And he had called all his friends over. You can't see anything. And it. everybody was just, it was like a mini party right in the driveway. And this car wasn't just any car to Courtney. They had a relationship. He would talk to the car every morning like it was um, his girlfriend. Good morning, baby. How are you today? I mean, it was just, that was his life. The car was his life for sure. Wow. So yeah, I guess it symbolized something so meaningful to him about what he had accomplished in life yes. and where he was heading. And it did. It did. His goals were always to make sure that we didn't have to work. His sisters didn't have to do anything. So once he received that BMW bonus, he actually pushed harder and he was working harder, talking to more people and trying to get as much as he could in the way of excelling his business as possible. So one night you hear a knock on the door mm -hmm. at two in the morning yes. and it's the police. Mm -hmm. Can you take me back to that moment? Yes. I, I remember that night like it was yesterday. I could still hear the thunderous beat in my head. You know, this is something that you never forget these sounds, these moments where you were. And I remember being so startled out of my sleep because I've never experienced such a, a bamming at my door. So that bamming, it, it shocked me and I knew that something bad had happened. And so when I got to the door, the officer was like, do you know a Courtney Copeland? And I said, yes, I'm his mother. And then he said, well, we come to notify you that you need to call Illinois Masonic Hospital. And at that moment, the first thing that goes through my mind is, oh, my God, my son has been in a terrible accident. Something has happened. And uh, so I'm like, for a police officer to come to your home, it has to be extremely serious. So I remember my husband, he, he had jumped out of bed as well. And by this time, I, I, I'm focusing on, okay, I have to go change my clothes and get ready because they're telling us that we have to go to this hospital. And so my husband is talking to them and I was like, well, Brent, call the hospital. Let's see what's happening. And I'm putting on my clothes and they said, we can't tell you over the phone. You need to come in. 
once that happened, once he uttered those words, I remember being in my bedroom and just falling to the floor because I just felt in my gut that them telling you that they can't tell you on the phone, this must be bad. And then once I arrived to the hospital, uh, I told them who I was. I said, I'm here to see Courtney Copeland. And then they said, well, we need to take you to the family room. And I remember just like it just happened just now when they said that, I was like, I'm not going. I'm not going into the family room. Because in that moment, you know that your child is gone. And so I said, I, at that point, I started to demand to see Courtney. And they were like, we can't allow you to see him. And I'm like, you know, it was an emotional, emotional moment. Because everyone knew at that moment that Courtney was gone. But, you know, as a mom, you want to see that confirmation. You want to you want to see your child. And uh, they were at first denying us the right to see Courtney and they were denying us uh, the right to even really know a lot of information about him. What was the reason they wouldn't let you see Courtney? Well, because it was a murder investigation. And Mm -hmm. so they said that the police had already determined that this was a murder and that no one is to be able to see him. And so they said their protocol is to send them directly to the morgue. And so about 45 minutes to an hour, the doctor finally comes and tells us what what happened. And so we're in the family room. And at this time, it's about 30 family members that are with us and his friends, his closest friends. And they were like, you know, the doctor came and said, your son was brought in by ambulance and he was shot. And all of us just like shot by who? And we all fell to the ground because... We couldn't believe, I mean, because for Courtney to be shot, it was just something that was unfathomable about him of all people being shot. He was not, you know, violent. He, you know, if, if he saw confrontation, Courtney would leave. So for them to tell us that he had been shot, we immediately said, by who, who did this to him? After nearly two hours of pleading with hospital doctors and staff, Shapurl was finally allowed to see her son. She and her family made their way to the trauma ward, where Courtney was lying on a hospital bed. Uh, I would probably say that was probably the hardest moment of my life. To be able to see him in that state, you know, I remember so vividly when we first walked in the room and you know all of my family was there and i can re- i can remember myself just telling everybody i need to be alone with my baby i need a moment i need him to know that you know mommy was sorry that she wasn't there you know i i just imagine my son going through all this trauma by himself and not having his mom there and that was hard for me And I remember touching him and kissing him and his, his body was still warm. And, you know, you know, those moments, you just think about all of the time that you had 
and 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 they're rushing back every moment from birthing him into this moment where you're looking at him for his final days, his final seconds, his final hours, and to that very final moment when you're getting ready to say goodbye. Hmm. There's a moment at the hospital that night where when you feel more than just grief. Yes. Yes. After we view Courtney, the two detectives that allow us to see him, they begin to question us about Courtney in the vehicle. The first question they asked was, who was the owner of the BMW? And I said, Courtney. Courtney is the owner of the BMW. And I said, but he did have a co-signer. So in my mind, I was thinking maybe uh, this was a traffic stop gone wrong because why would you be questioning? You know, I'm thinking detectives, if they're telling me that my son was shot and killed by an unknown assailant, then the first thing should have been, you know, where was he going? Who was he with? What, what information do you know? But to question the vehicle, it made me suspicious of their intent. Maybe they thought that Courtney had stolen the vehicle. It was like to me they were interrogating Courtney as opposed to trying to find out who could have done this to him. So at this point, Chaparral, you decide to take matters into your own hands and you go into full investigator mode. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and it's hard to imagine where I'd even begin. Well, you know, it wasn't by choice that I took this journey in investigating my son's murder. I had no other option. I felt that Courtney deserved to have closure. I mean, it was like day in and day out from the moment I found out that Courtney had been killed. I needed to know why. I, I still need to know why. And I needed to know how. How did these things occur? What happened? And so, you know, within my being, it was just constantly turning all of these unknowns. And I had to try to uncover whatever I could. I mean, literally, we were we were working we were working on Courtney's case 24-7. I don't think I slept the first week because I would maybe sleep like two to three hours because I was constantly going over the timeline. I was recording what my thoughts were, any tips I was putting in there. We were going out in the neighborhood. We were walking, uh, looking for clues. We were talking to his friends that he would have encountered that night. So we were literally, uh, we had all boots on the streets trying to figure out what happened. Hmm. You eventually tracked down Courtney's hospital records. Yes. What did the records say? I, you know, at the time that I actually received the medical records, I had already had suspicions that something was wrong. So the first page of the medical documents was the Chicago Fire Department uh, run sheet. And that particular run sheet, the first paragraph of it, it states that my son was violent, agitated, combative, and a threat to others. And so I knew in my heart, because I know my son, that this information had to be wrong. Hmm. 
As I continue to read, it says, and the patient was handcuffed. When I saw that my son was handcuffed, I lost it. I mean, I was just like, why would you handcuff somebody who who was dying? And he went to you for help. And so none of this made any sense to me. And it only heightened my suspicion. You know, you felt a little comfort in knowing that at least he was well cared for on the scene. But when you find out that that was not true, it just crushed me. Throughout your investigation, you and members of the community are sharing leads with the police. But they seem to be falling on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. In fact, the police department goes totally silent on you for an entire year. What tactics do you use to try to keep their attention on Courtney's case? Well, we actually did rallies outside of the uh, 25th district. We marched on the mayor's uh, office and we also uh, canvassed the neighborhoods. We talked to neighbors who had video cameras. We requested FOIA information, Freedom of Information Act, so that that way we can get all the tapes, the audio, the visual, the pod cameras, everything that surrounded this case. Chaperl was intent on getting access to the footage surrounding Courtney's death and began searching the web for potential partners who could help her. One night, around 2.30 in the morning, she came across an article about Laquan McDonald, the 17-year-old who was fatally shot by a Chicago police officer in 2014. The article cited a nonprofit called the Invisible Institute. The Institute had played a key role in getting footage released from Laquan McDonald's case. And so I I said, well, at this point, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to write to the Invisible Institute to see if I can get some help with trying to get the videotapes and the audio tapes that we know that the police have surrounding Courtney's case. Because at that point, I was only looking for someone to listen to me and to hear me because I felt like everything I was saying as a mom, it was being misconstrued as I'm just a grieving mom and none of this have any merit. But what I was showing to the world, what I wanted the world to understand, that there are a lot of inconsistencies in this case. Yeah, it's so interesting how when you occupy the role of mom, there's a a presumption that emotions, bias, Mm -hmm. all that stuff is creeping in when in actuality, you were holding yourself to a very rigorous process Mm -hmm. and you were just trying to find the facts. Yes. uh, Very early on, um, my friend Santita, she told me, you don't want to come to a conclusion. You want to arrive at the conclusion. You want to let the evidence lead you to what happened to your son. And so that was one of the uh, crucial advices that I received and that I tried to adapt during the whole process that I wanted to naturally allow the evidence to tell us what happened to Courtney. I'm wondering, were there strategies you used to try and gain more credibility in the eyes of the police force, given your status as, quote, mom? You know, I think that they were dismissive because I was a mom. They were dismissive because I was Black. All of these things, and I don't know if they would treat everyone like that, but I felt that they treated me very badly. But I I believe that they felt that uh, because I'm not... uh, 
I didn't go to, to law school. I didn't go to the police academy. That therefore, that my only knowledge about solving crimes is uh, special victims uh, unit on law and order. That's what that's what they basically thought that I was doing. And just like I told them, I said, no, this is basic information. I mean, you know, I had to actually read a lot of terminology. I had to understand everything that I was reading in their report. Some things I didn't understand. And I had to go and look it up. Well, what does this mean when they say this? What is What does these codes mean? in police language. So in order for me to understand that, I had to actually reach out to a couple of police officer friends that I know, had to reach out to some sheriff people that I know, and to try to figure out the terminology so I could understand on their level. Same with the autopsy report. It's a lot of medical terminology I didn't know. So as a mom, I had to take off my mom emotional world and put on my uh, investigative mode hat and try to figure out what happened to my son. So I wanted to know all the ins and outs, how the bullet traveled, everything. And people were like, this is just too much. It's too much. You're doing too much. And I will tell them, no, I need to know. I need to know how, how did my son pass away? I need to know. Together with the Invisible Institute, Chaparral continued to advocate for the release of footage from Courtney's final moments. And finally, the police agreed to turn it over, one and a half years after Courtney's death. I asked Chaparral what it was like to hold those videos in her hands for the first time. You know, I remember uh, receiving the videos in my mailbox, and I had prepared myself I came up in my room, set up the DVD player, got prepared to watch it. I prayed before I loaded it because I knew it was going to be hard to actually see it. I pop it in and it tells me it's in a format that I can't even read. So I remember feeling this this horrible, horrible feeling like they're playing with me. They're playing with my emotions. They knew that they sent me a format that I couldn't read. So I remember just crying out and I called the Invisible Institute to ask them if they can decode it. So the moment that we get the videotape decoded, I remember uh, the Invisible Institute being with me. And all I could see is my son just like reaching up on his knees, begging him to help begging. He's surrounded by eight to 10 cops. And my son is begging to be helped. And then the video cuts away and focuses on the police station for two minutes. And so I'm like, what is happening to my son? I'm panicking because I don't even know what's happening at this point. Why would the video just automatically turn away from the scene into we're watching the police station? And then the next frame is when they aggressively picked up my son off the ground, throw him against the police car and then onto the gurney as if he was a rag doll. And that's why I, I, I often tell people it's so hard 
it's so hard to even imagine the emotions that my son, I, I, I just know my son was just so confused. Like police are supposed to be here to serve and protect you. And I'm shot. I'm scared. What's happening? And this is what his final moments were. And he was by himself. And I tell people all the time, that's like the hardest thing for me as a mom to know that he endured all this by himself. And there was nobody there who cared enough for him to help him through this and to comfort him in these moments. Not a soul was there. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. Over the next several years, Shapurl Wells continued to push for further clarity around what actually happened to her son, Courtney Copeland. In September of 2020, she received some news from the city of Chicago. Shapurl's advocacy had paid off. The Office of the Inspector General, an independent watchdog agency, had decided to launch a formal investigation into Courtney's case. The investigation is currently underway. Where do you go from here, Shapurl? A lot of people say, you know, don't put too much stock in what this report shows. Hmm. But I think that what happened to Courtney has to be addressed on all levels of city government, state government, federal government, because I feel that these incidents occur far more frequently than police shootings, but they don't get the highlight and the notoriety because it's not the police pulling the trigger or a beat down or a knee on the neck. But these type of incidents of racial profiling and police accountability need to be addressed. So I'm looking for more legislative changes to see if the inspector general could make uh, policy changes that would change the policy from they can intervene into they must intervene to help to save more lives. Because the reality is, is that, like I said, it wasn't the fact that Courtney was shot. It was the lack of urgency to his care. You know, recently, uh, Officer French was shot in Chicago and she was killed. I listened to that traffic uh, on the police scanner that day. And I was listening in real time. I saw how they move heaven and earth to get her to the nearest trauma center, as they should, as they should. But that same care that they put for Officer French should go for every citizen in Chicago, in the United States. There should be no respect of person because of their title. But everybody deserves a fighting chance. And so if we make these legislative changes to ensure that everyone has the opportunity at life, then that would be justice for Courtney. 
Hmm. Did you ever find your relationship with the police changing throughout this process? I mean, did how you approach them change in any way? Well, I would say we still have a contentious relationship. I would say that I still have no faith in them that they would actually solve Courtney's murder. But I'm hoping that we can come to a clear understanding that Courtney deserves justice. This was not, for me, um, an investigation on the police to try to entrap them or to make them look like the bad guy. I wanted justice for my son. It didn't matter if it was the police, if it was a stranger. Whoever did this to Courtney, they deserve to be prosecuted and convicted of this crime. So that was my only goal. And I was always telling them, I want you to treat my son as if it was yours. How would you go about handling this investigation if it was your child on that slab instead of mine? Hmm. I'm curious to know how having clarity around Courtney's death will impact your life on a personal level, aside from the advocacy part. I know there's nothing I could do. I know as a mother, I cannot change what happened. I, I don't even know if me being there would have been any different. But for me, the clarity I have is more introspective about life and how fragile it is and how that you live every moment as if it's your last and you love harder and you love more freely. So that's the clarity I've learned in all of this is to make sure you tell everyone that you love them. Because I didn't know that I wasn't going to be able to tell my son that. And now I only can tell him in my actions and my continuous fight for him. But I wish I had that moment to say that for him to hear it. Do you think this reflects a change in how you've, how you've thought about your goals throughout, which is at the beginning, you were seeking clarity around the facts. And actually now it's, it's also clarity around how you plan to live the rest of your life. Yeah. Like that's what you ended up getting from it. Yeah. You know, the, it's this poem that I often quote, the hardest thing was hearing that my son had passed away. But now it's the hardest thing is going on and living without him now that I've heard that. And, and, and that is that is the truth. How do you how do you continue to move forward and go on? And I hope that what the world gathers from Courtney is just to love, just to love, to show the love and not be afraid to show how you feel about someone. One of the greatest things about Courtney that I learned in his death is that he had this keen ability to make everyone feel special, to make everyone feel loved. And if you ask any of his friends, they'll say Courtney was my best friend. Usually we only get one, but he made everyone feel like they were his best friend. And so I'm learning from him those qualities of making myself vulnerable 
and to show love more often. Has telling Courtney's story, including the story of how well he lived his life, helped you heal in ways that you couldn't have anticipated? I I would say yes. Um, As a parent, you grow up teaching your children the morals, guidance. You know, you're you're instilling so much into them. And you're like, I want I hope these kids are listening to me. And what 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 I found out in his death is that he was. The way I raised him is the way that he was living. And so I find so much comfort and so much joy in hearing other people talk about my son. The way that he made them feel. Uh I recall uh the weekend that Courtney had passed away. I opened my home to the public because it was just so much outpouring of grief and they were grieving with me, grieving for me. And we were all united in this great loss of Courtney Copeland. And I had opened my house to anyone who wanted to come and pay their respects. And I remember a gentleman walking into my home and he told me, He said, you don't know me and I don't even know your son, but I saw his photo on the TV that he had been killed. And he handed me this Quran and he hands me this Quran. He said, ma'am, your son came into my restaurant about a month ago and he saw me. He was sitting with his girlfriend. He saw me. He said, I was in so much pain that day. And he said, your son saw the anguish in my face and he walked over to me and he said, sir, I don't know you, but I just want to encourage you today. I want to give you some hope and tell you that whatever it is that you're going through, that God is going to be able to help you. He started crying. He said, because your son came to me in that day and he gave me those words of encouragement and told me to keep going and whatever I was going through it was going to be okay. I'm here today. And he turned around and he walked out. And I just like, oh my God. And you have so much, you have so much joy and sadness at the same time. But you, as a parent, you said, my child has been listening in, in there and they're validating you as a parent. And so I thought that was just like so profound that we wanted him to grow up and treat people with dignity and respect. And that's the way I would want him to have been treated as well. There's an update to Shapiro's story that I wanted to share with you. When she and I initially spoke, the Inspector General's investigation was still underway. But Shapiro was recently notified that the investigation has wrapped up, and a final report has been sent to the city of Chicago. The report is slated to be released to the public in the coming months. For more details on the evolution of Courtney's case, you can listen to the podcast Somebody, which was named a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize this past year. Thank you. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening to A Slight Change of Plans this year and for sharing the show with others. We're hard at work on a new batch of episodes, but in the meantime, you can check out the feed for episodes you may not have heard yet. From the whole Slight Change family, we're wishing you a peaceful and restful holiday. We'll see you in the new year. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our associate producer, and Mia Lavelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there, including Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, Leetal Malad, and Heather Fain. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. Can you just quickly share the story of finding out what Courtney named you on his phone? (laughs) You know, we're going through his phone and we're looking at all the messages. It it says, "Uh uh-oh, whose number is this? And lo and behold, it's my number. And I'm like, (sighs) you know, as any mother, he's like, here she go again. Uh Uh-oh. But he would also call me mama bear. He would like mama bear, mama bear. And and I think that 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 is just it. And mama bear is fighting for him. And he knew that whatever situation, whether it was uh uh-oh or mama bear, I was going to be somebody that's going to be determined to find out what happened to him.